is Gareth Kavanagh with Gript. I'm here today with Kun Stoop, the EU policy coordinator of the World Uyghur Congress. Kun, it's great to have you here today. Thank you much, Gary. It's uh, it's good to be here. Kun, could you just start off by giving a bit of an explanation of what the World Uyghur Congress does at the minute, who the Uyghur people are, and sort of why we've started to see more and more of them in the news over the last year? Mm -hmm, of course. Um, so the World Uyghur Congress is an international umbrella organization uh, that represents the collective interests of the Uyghur people, uh, both in the Uyghur region uh, and abroad. Um, so to just go back one step, uh, the Uyghur people are a, a Turkic ethnic group um, who are originally from uh, Central and East Asia, um, but are native to uh, what the Uyghurs call uh, East Turkestan, uh, but what is now officially known uh, in China as the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, and what the Uyghur, what Uyghur, what Uyghur Congress does uh, since it was uh, established in 2004 um, is that it promotes and advocates for the human rights of the Uyghur people. Um, so the, the situation of uh, the Uyghurs who are, as I said, native to what the Uyghurs call uh, East Turkestan or what I will also call uh, the Uyghur region, um, the Uyghurs have been uh, always uh, in and out of the uh, Chinese Empire for for uh, the past centuries, uh, but since the early ninth or early twentieth century, um, it has become officially part uh, uh, of the of China of the country China uh, since it uh, was invaded by the, uh, the People's Liberation Army. Um, and basically, uh, fast forward to uh, the twenty first century. Uh, basically, since uh, Xi Jinping became the president of China, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we have seen uh, a lot of repression uh, towards the uh, Uyghur people um, taken together being uh, an attack on uh, the very distinct ethnic identity of the Uyghur people. Um, so not only uh, attacking their culture, also their religion, their language, um, and also the, pe the people themselves, as I will uh, later also explain. Um, and as I said, the World Uyghur Congress uh, promotes the human rights of the Uyghur people um, in front of uh, various uh, international institutions uh, like the European Union, the United Nations, but also in countries like the United States, the UK, and, uh, and a host of uh, different European countries. So I'm sure people will have seen images of people with shaved heads being tied to the ground, waiting for trains. We've heard stories of forced labor, mass detention camps. What's actually happening on the ground in the region? Are those reports mm -hmm. accurate or? Um, yes. Um, so as, as you see, uh, as you say, like the, the images of uh, what, yeah, what detainees with shaven hats are, of course, the images that come out and that get picked up the most. Um, but this is actually part of, as I said, a larger campaign to target uh, what it, like the very ethnic identity of the Uyghurs and as a result also the Uyghur peoples themselves. Um, so as I said before, uh, since uh, President Xi Jinping uh, took the lead, uh, became leader in China, uh, the situation worsens uh, gradually. Uh, but especially since 2017, a lot of Uyghurs in the diaspora started losing contact with their family members. Um, the families didn't reach out to them anymore and the, the people in the diaspora couldn't reach the people in East Turkestan. Um, so soon after, reports started emerging that the uh, Chinese authorities uh, started building what turned out to be a very 
uh, expensive uh, internment camp system, where uh, we estimate that now between 1.8 and 3 million Uyghurs are being arbitrarily detained. Um, and the, this, these, these images emerging from these camps, also satellite imagery, um, has caught the, the eye of the world. Um, and indeed, as you say, um, especially in 2020, uh, reports have started coming out that this uh, internment camp system is also now linked to a pervasive uh, scheme of uh, forced labor. Uh, so where Uyghurs are not only forced to work inside these camps, uh, but these camps are also transmitted into uh, forced labor camps. Um, and also recently new evidence has come out that uh, throughout the Uyghur region as a whole, uh, Uyghurs have been uh, forced to pick cotton, for instance, uh, and do other forms of uh, forced labor. So I have heard some reports that say there are indications that they're moving away from the camp systems and moving more towards more permanent detainment facilities or just a wider spread of forced labor. Is that accurate from what you've seen or are the camps still a very integral part of what's happening on the ground? Um, I would say that's that's both correct. Um, so first of all, uh, I think it's good to say that um, for the first years of uh, the satellite imagery coming out and the existence of the camp, um, being reported by various news outlets, the Chinese government initially denied the existence of these camps. Mm. Um, based on the, the satellite imagery, the Chinese government eventually conceded, uh, but it has always said it, they are certain re-education camps. Um, and indeed, over the past year, um, the Chinese government has said that uh, Uyghurs and also other Turkic Muslims being detained in these camps have what they called graduated. Um, however, new reports have emerged over the course of last year that, uh, in fact, the internment camp system is actually expanding, uh, meaning that uh, detainment facilities are being upgraded or expanded. Um, and this, this connects also to the system of Uyghur forced labor. Um, so yes, the, the internment system continues to be an integral part of the Chinese uh, government's policy of repression. But we also see now that um, Uyghurs uh, not only from these internment camps, but Uyghurs from the Uyghur region as a whole uh, are now being uh, forced into uh, yeah, forced labor settings on a massive scale, really. So the Chinese are saying these are educational camps, that they're there to combat extremism and give people the skills to integrate into China. What are conditions like in the camps? Um, conditions from, from what we are able to, to, to hear, of course. Um, because first of all, uh, to, to get an insight in what is actually happening inside these camps is extremely difficult uh, because China does not let any uh, independent observers uh, into these camps. Um, and the observers that have been uh, allowed to enter these camps, uh, they were mostly foreign journalists, uh, have been painted a picture by uh, the Chinese Communist Party um, that Uyghurs are very happy, are, are being uh, taught classes that they are willingly attending uh, but in reality, from from uh, camp survivors, uh, we've ho uh, we've heard the most uh, harrowing stories um, of severe maltreatment. Um, so this includes torture, um, as we have uh, said, forced labor, uh, sexual abuse, um, and also that women, for instance, are uh, subjected to uh, forced sterilizations. Um, from from what we've heard, is that uh, we just have described being in overcrowded prison cells. Um, they are watched 24-7, um, and yes, I said it's 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 a case of severe maltreatment, and the, the conditions in the camps, as we hear from from camp survivors, are uh, really horrible. 
So we're talking there about forced labor. Do we have any idea what kind of firms uh, this labor is being used in? Have any Western companies been connected directly to the use of this forced labor? Yes. So um, in the beginning of 2020, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, public published a report um, which is based on publicly available uh, documents from the Chinese Communist Party uh, detailing um, how uh, tens of thousands of Uyghurs have been um, moved into forced labor settings throughout China. So this is not only a case of where Uyghurs inside the Uyghur region uh, are being uh, subjected to forced labor, but are also transferred uh, to factories throughout China. Um, and one of the major findings of this report is was that it um, connected over 80 uh, Western apparel brands uh, to the cotton or other uh, production of clothing inside these factories. Um, and since then, uh, from the evidence that's been coming out, um, I, th I think it is safe to say that uh, like all cotton uh, being produced in, in East Turkestan is, uh, is most probably tainted by Uyghur forced labor. Um, and this has very significant consequences uh, for the Western world as well, um, as over 20% of the world's cotton production uh, is from the Uyghur region. Um, so that, that gives you a kind of a picture that paints a picture of the, the extensive scale of Uyghur forced labor and how it implies um, basically the entire uh, fashion industry, the global fashion industry. So when did this start to happen? Because stories have started popping up maybe the last year and a half, slightly longer than that. But in many ways, this seems quite similar to what happened to the Feilong Gong, more with the detentions and obviously it was a very different situation. But is this, are these two things connected as in that they flow into each other or was the Feilong Gong uh, persecution happened earlier, there was a stoppage and then it went into this or, or is it just one kind of process? Mm -hmm. So the, the Uyghur crisis is uh, definitely not an isolated case. Uh, we see this happening throughout China, uh, though in different forms and in, in different ways of, of severity. Um, for instance, uh, we have uh, similar uh, grave human rights violations happening against Tibetans, uh, people in, 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 in Southern Mongolia. Uh, and most recently, we've also seen uh, this happening, though in a different, in a different way uh, in Hong Kong. Um, so the way this, this can be understood is that um, what is happening to all these, a lot of, are, a lot of them are uh, ethnic minority groups, for instance, Tibetans, uh, Uyghurs as well, and Falun Gong uh, on a more religious level. Um, they've all been targeted um, as having a, a distinct ethnic, cultural, religious identity. And this goes against uh, Jinping's uh, aim to have a unified uh, China uh, which is based on uh, the, the Han Chinese culture. Um, so in the end, what uh, all these current policies against these different groups are trying to, to aim for uh, is a very uh, monocultural China in which there are no different ex uh, religious, uh, cultural, linguistic expressions. Um, so what is happening now to Uyghurs um, neatly links into these different cases. Uh, I can, for instance, single out the, the person of uh, Cheng Wang uh, who was first um, uh, responsible in Tibet for repressive policies there, and since 2016 was moved to uh, East Turkestan uh, to become a leading figure there. And since then, uh, uh, Cheng Rangwo has really implemented uh, a, a, state, a police state of mass surveillance. 
So we see that not only um, in terms of policies, they are, these are applied to different groups in China, but it's also uh, it's concretely connected to, to uh, certain individuals. So you said there about Xi Jinping and his attempts to build this monocultural China based on the Han. Why is that happening? I mean, we've heard him come out and say that this is being done in order to combat extremism, and it's you know, that is the only reason that's being done. But I think we can see, not just in relation to uh, Uyghurs, but in relation to other ethnic minorities in the country, that there does seem to be a movement against quite a lot of them. But what is the what is the purpose behind that? Why are they trying to build this monocultural state? I would say there's not one particular reason that could be singled out as being the underlying reason to all of this. Um, if, if we talk about uh, the Uyghurs and also East Turkestan, um, one of the major reasons is, is also its geo, uh, geographical location. Mm. Um, the Uyghur region has always played a, a very important part in the Asian Silk Road, uh, connecting, uh, connecting China uh, to, to Central Asia in the end also to Europe. Um, and Xi Jinping, one of his main projects is the uh, Belt and Road Initiative that is basically connecting, again, China uh, through railways uh, to Europe. And East Turkestan uh, is geographically a very important region. Uh, so in this sense, and this is only one of the many reasons that can be singled out, but in this geographical, but most of all, in, like economic sense, um, it is imperative for, uh, for the Chinese Communist Party to have absolute control over the region as not to um, disturb its Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and one, and in the end, it all boils down to uh, to, to state control over, over the Uyghur people, both the Tibetans and, and people in Hong Kong. Um, and as you say, um, the Chinese Communist Party has, has defended its, its, its repressive uh, policies against Uyghurs as being a counter-terrorist uh, uh, measure. Um, however, we see that this is only a rhetoric that was adopted uh, after the nine, uh, after the terrorist attacks in the U.S. in 2001, um, and really in two, after 2001, uh, the Chinese Communist Party really started to adopt uh, this language uh, to defend its 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 policies against Uyghurs, um, and this has escalated so much that um, uh, right now uh, reasons for being sent to the camp are uh, like having a long beard, uh, possessing a Quran. Um, uh, having family abroad, talking to family abroad, like these have all become have all become reasons to be uh, arbitrarily detained for Uyghurs in in these internment camps, and these are also uh, like very everyday uh, non-violent expressions, uh, whether they be a cultural, linguistic, or religious. Uh, these have all been uh, incorporated in 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 these anti anti-terrorism measures of the Chinese Communist Party. So we really see that. In the end, it's it's all about state control um, and not allowing any any form of dissent or any form of distinct cultural religious uh, expression, uh, whether it be by Uyghurs or also by Tibetans, uh, people in southern Mongolia, and so on. So your expectation would be that there will be no let up here; that this is is a project that's going to be carried out pretty much to the end, or until the Chinese government is satisfied that there's absolutely no resistance left on the ground. Uh, indeed, it was uh, even even uh, reiterated by uh, President Xi Jinping a few months back uh, in, in his speech uh, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party said that their policies in, in East Turkestan were going well and that they would continue doing so. Um, so I think that also highlights the need 
um, the need for, for, for the international community to take action. Um, and I think that's also why it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a good thing that this is being picked up more and more. Um, but this is also, I would say, logical, given the scale and the severity of the situation. So we've, we've seen more and more academics come out and say that what is happening on the ground meets the strict legal definition of genocide. And maybe last year there were people saying it could be considered a cultural genocide. But now I think particularly with the reports of mass sterilization that have started to come out, there seems to be much more movement to simply say this is actually just a, a cut and dry, legally uh, defined genocide. And what is your opinion on that? Do you think what is happening here meets that definition? Um, I think overall, um, like myself and also the World Uyghur Congress has also been very careful about the uh, about the language that we use when mm. referring to crisis, um, because it, yeah, like using the right language also means uh, calling for appropriate action to be taken. Um, and as you say, like indeed, we've 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 mentioned before that it, it indeed could be or is a cultural genocide, uh, given the, the widespread reports of the destruction of mosques and also a lot of forms of cultural heritage. Uh, but as you rightly mentioned, uh, in July, the uh, German scholar Adrian Zenz, he released a report in which he detailed uh, how the Chinese uh, authorities have implemented a scheme of uh, forced abortion and forced sterilization in order to suppress Uyghur birth rates. And I think, as, especially these findings, uh, they meet one of the criteria uh, of genocide under the UN Genocide Convention. Um, so since then, we do consider uh, this to be a genocide. Um, however, uh, calling for something to be a genocide as, as a civil society organization um, only has the appropriate effect if this is also be taken up uh, by, the, by the international community and by uh, the necessary international actors. Uh, so we've seen it's been taken up in Canada, where the uh, Committee on Human Rights, uh, based on multiple hearings, has indeed said uh, yes, this this constitutes a genocide. Um, there is a resolution in the United States um, that, that really calls upon uh, Secretary of State to 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 really determine whether these atrocities against Uyghurs indeed uh, constitute a genocide. Um, for, like the debate is uh, now in England and in the UK as well. Um, but so far, uh, especially in the European Union, we've seen. Uh, that many countries are reluctant to call something a genocide because it's, of course, the, the gravest crime that can be committed mm -hmm. and therefore also necessitates the appropriate response from these countries. Um, and it's therefore also that uh, the World Uyghur Congress um, in earlier this year or in, in 2020, uh, in September, um, has called for the establishment of a, uh, of a tribunal, um, which was indeed established uh, the month after, uh, called the Uyghur Tribunal. Um, and, and the aim of this Uyghur tribunal is to collect all the evidence. Um, it will, um, uh, as part of this tribunal, an independent team of legal experts uh, will then look at this evidence, uh, hold hearings over the course of 2021, and hopefully by the end of this year, it will come with a independent legal judgment to see whether this is indeed a genocide or not. And these, as you say, legal, like strictly legal, uh, judgments according to a very strict legal definition are very important uh, as because the European Union um, in our meetings with European Union they've always said uh, yes we cannot make a genocide designation on our own we also we always need um, a judgment by uh, an established uh, international uh, body 
um, and hopefully the uh, the Uyghur tribunal um, will will give clarity on this. Um, like the, the role of the uh, World Uyghur Congress is is strictly to provide information, so the Uyghur tribunal is uh, strictly independent from any civil society organization. Um, so we think uh, that these these kind of efforts are, are really important to also convince the international community that what is happening is indeed a genocide, um, which is of course the first step because after that what is needed is the appropriate action. Um, and, and as you say, over the past year and a half, uh, there has been a lot of public awareness for the Uyghur cause. Um, and therefore we, we feel that people know what is happening right now. The world cannot, can no longer look away. Uh, what is needed now is meaningful, concrete action by the international community um, to, to really put an end to, to these horrific crimes against, against Uyghurs, because the international community, uh, there's enough they can do. Uh, but so far, we've we've seen we've seen statements, we've seen uh, public uh, condemnation, uh, but it has really stopped short of concrete action in a lot of cases. It's been fairly widely reported about the forced labour, the detainments, the sterilisations. One thing I, I haven't heard that widely reported, but I have heard mention of, and I'd be interested to to know if you've heard about it happening on the ground. Is I know that when the independent tribunal into force organ harvesting from prisoners of conscience in China gave their final report. They mostly focused on religious prisoners, particularly the Falun Gong, but also uh, Buddhist prisoners. But in that, they did say that they thought that there had been a mass uh, uh, DNA sampling of the Uyghur population in camps and that a number of Uyghurs had likely been uh, harvested for their organs. Have you seen any evidence of that, or you have have you heard anything about that coming from people on the ground? Um, the, the systematic organ harvesting of Uyghurs is uh, something that is incredibly hard to uh, to, to see it if it is actually happening in East Turkestan. Um, as you say, there there is indeed uh, as part of the very pervasive Fafian state in, in the Uyghur region now. Uh, since 2017, uh, it has, there has been like widespread DNA sampling. Um, there is like CCTV cameras everywhere that register uh, every movement of every Uyghur in the Uyghur region. Um, and as the uh, as the uh, tribunal said, uh, this could facilitate uh, widespread organ harvesting of Uyghurs. Uh, but it has been incredibly difficult to verify if this is also actually happening mm -hmm. uh, because it's nearly impossible to get a, like an independent insight in what is actually happening inside these camps. Speaking of surveillance cameras, which mentioned there, I do remember the story uh, a couple of months ago now, I think, on the development within China of surveillance camera that was capable of noting uh, facial features that were common to the Uyghur population. And then there was the counterclaim that this had only been proposed and it was a thought experiment and it had never actually been developed, but then there did also seem to be other reports that said that it had been developed and it had been adopted in certain regions. Could you shed any light on it? What, what is the status of that technology? Is it actually on the ground? Whether it is actually on the ground, of course, is, is very difficult to say, um, but the reports that you mentioned that have been coming out over the past month uh, clearly indicate that uh, tech giants like, like Huawei um, but also Alibaba have been involved in, in uh, like offering software 
uh, that could be used to to single out Uyghurs from a group of people. Um, after which, for instance, police could be notified, Uyghurs could be arrested, uh, detained, um, and 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 subsequent actions taken. Uh, but this is indeed the 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 involvement of such tech giants uh, gives a pretty clear insight into the scale and the severity of the repression against Uyghurs, and also the fact that Uyghurs specifically are targeted. Uh, in this sense, it is that like being Uyghur is already reason enough to be sent to one of these internment camps. Um, and even even though outside of the Uyghur region, um, this system might also now be developed, but inside the Uyghur region, it's it's nearly impossible for Uyghurs to, to go out on the street without being uh, followed or without being recognized by surveillance cameras. Uh, so this has really become a police state uh, in which Uyghurs are not free to move uh, and are really tracked, uh, as you said, by the DNA sampling uh, and and those and those kind of things. So it seems to be a concentrate of, of how difficult it is to actually confirm information from the region. On the information that, that you have actually been able to confirm, how have you guys been able to confirm it? Is it with interviews from people who've been able to get out of the camps? Or is it some of the reports like Zen's or the Associated Press's report uh, in the region? Um, how have you gone about that and, and making sure that the information you have is as accurate and as up to date as, mm -hmm. as can be, I suppose? Yeah, of course, these are, are very, very legitimate concerns. Um, but uh, especially over the past few years, there has been uh, a huge amount of evidence coming out of the region. Uh, first of all, as you say, uh, from, from camps of fivers of other Uyghurs who've managed uh, to flee the region, um, and they've all told their stories, and all these uh, stories uh, like show uh, a lot of similarities. Uh, they all detail the 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 sheer extent of the the internment camp system, the the widespread use of forced labor in the region, uh, and also, for instance, the 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 scheme of sterilization. Like there have been multiple Uyghur women who have uh, fled the Uyghur region, uh, and after that, they were medically examined abroad, where it was indeed found. Uh, they were forcibly sterilized, um, and apart from from Uyghurs themselves who have managed to uh, to flee the region, um, as I said, there's a lot of sim satellite imagery that is uh, freely uh, accessible and which details uh, quite thoroughly the the expansion of these camps. Um, and then thirdly, there's also over the past few years there uh, have been multiple leaked governments uh, um, government documents from the from Chinese Communist Party. Um, so only uh, two months ago, uh, Human Rights Watch uh, um, uh, got insight in what was called the Axel List, uh, which which detailed very finely for what sorts of behavior Uyghurs uh, um, could be sent to camps, uh, and this included everyday, nonviolent, very normal behavior. Um, for instance, being born after 1980 was was listed as one of the reasons uh, of of being suspicious to to government authorities. Uh, so all in all, I think there's there's evidence enough to show what is actually happening there. Um, the only thing that is, of course, missing is like an independent in investigation, for instance, by the United Nations or the European Union to really look into these camps uh, in in a very independent manner, like without being without it being staged by by the Chinese uh, Chinese government. Um, but based on what has been uh, coming out. Uh, as evidence over the past years, um, it is undeniable to to say that the, what is actually happening is yeah, it's widespread system of internment, forced labor, and also uh, forced sterilizations. So, 
we have we do have some kind of stats provisional mostly based on chinese government documents and and some of the reports we've seen on the ground but with something like this the stats can kind of overshadow the the human nature of it so in your work have there been any particular personal stories you've come across of people who have been in the camps or or things of that nature that you think could be important to to put out there just so that people get a sense of the the actual human cost of this that it isn't just this bloodless thing happening halfway around the world that is just numbers yeah um absolutely you're absolutely right um like behind these 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 very large and very uh, outrageous numbers that you often hear there is behind every single of them there's a personal story uh, so in my work uh, basically every uyghur that i've spoken to has one of these stories of personal loss of personal suffering uh, for instance, the, the president of the World Uyghur Congress, uh, Mr. Tolkien Issa, um, his mother died in an internment camp in, in 2018. Uh, and just a few months later, um, he, uh, he, got, he had gotten news that his uh, father also passed away under very mysterious circumstances. Uh, but he only found this out through a CCP propaganda video. Um, so the CCP uh, forced his sister and other family members to denounce him publicly. Um, uh, and uh, through this video, he know he was uh, notified that his father had also passed away. Um, so basically, every member of the Uyghur diaspora has, has such a story of suffering, of loss, of family members or loved ones who have who have been missing. Um, so many Uyghurs have not been able to speak to their families for years now. Um, so there have been countless personal stories, and more and more personal stories are coming out as well. Uh, Uyghurs are are speaking out, uh, speaking up, even though the Chinese government continues to to harass, intimidate, and threat them, um, no matter where they live. Um, but these stories are 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 very common. Yeah, basically every Uyghur uh, knows someone who is who is missing or has someone missing. You were saying earlier about people who had relatives who had simply disappeared. I've started to see more reports and stories on that in the last couple of months. And is that is it becoming more common for people to just be lifted and totally disappear, or is it that uh, Uyghurs living abroad are becoming more willing to publicly talk about it, or is it just that it's getting picked up more that there's more of an interest in it and it's just more of a story? I I would say it's 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 the last it's the last point that you make. Um, these stories have been there since the very start. Um, Uyghurs have have always, uh, like very from the very close community, uh, Uyghurs have always been speaking out, even though uh, the Chinese government, as I said, is is trying to prevent Uyghurs from speaking out by harassing them. Uh, for instance, many Uyghurs who have uh, spoken out, who are living abroad, um, have been contacted by uh, Chinese police uh, or authorities um, who then threatened their family members in the Uyghur region uh, to be to be locked up, to be detained. So the Chinese government has, through like a wide range of of efforts, tried to 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 silence Uyghurs abroad. Um, but now that uh, yeah, like the situation is really catching the attention of the international press, uh, these stories are coming out more and more, and also uh, getting the attention they they deserve really. I want to go on to kind of the solutions and the kind of movements we're seeing on the countries. But just before we touch on that, we were talking about how the Chinese response to this has evolved over time from denial to, you know, they're, they're actually work education camps. 
And I saw, I, I imagine you've seen this, the start of this month, the Chinese embassy in the US uh, sent out a tweet about this where they were saying, they, they linked to a study and said that the minds of Uyghur women in Xinjiang have been emancipated, gender equality and reproductive health has been promoted. They are no longer baby making machines. They're confident and independent. And that seems to be an evolution of their defense into something that is very, very specific to Western cultures and a very sort of feminist uh, undertaking. And I think for the public, if you haven't seen the reports that are talking about forcible sterilization, then that might be compelling. Of course, if you have seen the reports, for someone to come out and say they've been emancipated because you know, they don't have to have children becomes a bit grotesque when you're aware of the uh, the mass sterilizations. But how do you think the, do you think this is part of a trend that we're going to see the Chinese government changing how they put forward what's happening in these camps, that they're going to be trying to make them, instead of denying their existence, they're just going to focus on um, uh, you know, saying this is, uh, allowing people to integrate and that these are positive things as opposed to a total denial of their existence? Um, I would say that this rhetoric that you that you mentioned here is is something we've seen for uh, yeah basically since since the whole issue started um, like for instance the, the counterterrorism measures were um, like adopted after 9/11, after like the U.S. adopted the, the, the or like the the rhetoric of the the war on terror. So the Chinese government, in its in its propaganda, in its disinformation, has always been very quick to adopt the terminology that is also popular in the West. Um, as I said, like the 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 the, the internment camps, uh, China has defended them by saying, "Oh, these are re-education camps. We are we are re-educating." uh Uyghurs uh and and like transforming them into citizens with with um with hope for for a good job for uh for for a better a healthier future um but this doesn't add up when you think or when you see that like these detainees Uyghurs are also very well educated people uh like being professors uh and so on um so I would say that the the rhetoric that China has been adopting is of course constantly evolving uh, according to what is relevant or what would be seen as more or less accepted in in the West. Um, but it is something that that has been done consistently um, to not only towards, of course, uh, Western people and people in the West, but also to its own citizens. Um, of course, uh, we here in the West uh, we have something called uh, freedom of press. Um, so there is. Uh, like we are able to access not only the Chinese propaganda but also the counter stories, um, and whereas in China itself, like the Chinese people, they only hear from what the government tells them. Um, so this is not only yeah, targeting the people in the West this type of propaganda, but um, I would also say the Chinese citizens itself. So onto the the actual solutions and what can be done about this. I suppose the first question is is. Is, can something be done about this by people outside China? Because I know I certainly had conversations with people, including politicians, where the general tone is that, you know, it's halfway across the world and they don't care what we do about it. I mean, they're a massive country. They're immensely wealthy. They're just going to do what they want, um, which seems a bit defeatist, uh, I mean, right off the bat. So, and. Is there something that people outside uh, China, countries outside China, 
can do to help here? Absolutely. There are many, uh, many things uh, governments can do, but also companies, businesses, even even consumers, people, uh, people themselves. Um, and I, I would say, even though China is a big country, its economic power and political power now is also immense. Uh, but it doesn't mean that China is not uh, susceptible to to pressure from the outside. Um, one one of the other other phases of Chinese propaganda is that it also shows that the Chinese government does care what, for instance, Europe or the U.S. thinks about them. Um, we we have seen it now with the uh, with the recent um, agreement, uh, the comprehensive agreement on investment between EU and China. Uh, China has been incredibly has been pushing incredibly hard to to finalize the, an investment agreement, uh, this investment agreement with Europe, uh, before the end of 2020. Um, not necessarily, I think, because of its economic consequences for China, but because of its political, uh, the, the political message that it sends. Uh, because, for instance, um, concluding this agreement with Europe now sends a message also to the US uh, that China, despite its grave human rights abuses that has been have been deteriorating over the past year, it is still freely able to enter into these agreements with the European Union. And this is also a point of action for not only European Union, but I think for the international community in general. Um, one of the ma main one is that the international community should not do business with a government that we consider is 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 uh, committing a genocide. Um, and this is not only governments can do something about. Um, for instance, uh, governments could uh, really hold their own companies accountable uh, for doing business in in Eastern Tur in East Turkestan. Um, as I've said, um, it is it is safe to say that um, the entire apparel, uh, like all the cotton that originates in in in, in East Turkestan, is tainted by Uyghur forced labor. Um, so there is no excuse for for both governments or for companies to do nothing about this. As I said, uh, governments can uh, introduce legislation that makes it uh, mandatory for companies to uh, pursue proper uh, what they call due diligence. So to make sure uh, in this in this case that they do not have any business relationships with factories or, or companies in East Turkestan. Companies themselves can can act on this. They can they can leave the the, the region. They can ensure they 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 uh, receive their cotton from other regions uh, in the world. And also, as a as consumer, in the case of forced labor, you can you can write these these uh, these companies. You can you can start buying clothes from sustainable brands who do not source their cotton from uh, from East Turkestan. Um, so through all levels of society, there's there's plenty of uh, possibility to really act. Um, so that yeah, absolutely, there's 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 a lot of possibilities. So let's say I'm a consumer and I want to try and buy ethical products. When I'm Byproducts that aren't tainted by forced labor. Is there anywhere online? I mean, is there a website or anything I can go onto and I can see the companies that are involved in this or they're profiting from this um, in kind of one place? Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. There are multiple, um, I would say, labels that uh, that really indicate where where good cotton good cotton comes from. Um, for instance, um, and this is something that also for consumers is very interesting to follow, uh, the World Oil Congress is part of a coalition of over 300 other civil society organizations called the Coalition to End Forced Labor in the Uyghur Region. Um, and this coalition has has come out with a call to action, uh, writing to, to, to companies 
to to analyze their supply chains and if it is found that uh, cotton from the uh, from East Turkestan is indeed uh, used um, this call to action means if they if these companies assign this call to action it means that they are working uh, actively to move out of, of the region so this is something consumers can can follow like they can see which which companies which brands have signed this call to action which which brands speak out publicly on on the Uyghur issue um, and then there are very as I said like very very like various labels that that indicate if for instance cotton is uh, grown without the use of forced labor um, so there are, yes that there is many uh, there are many of such such labels that that consumers can uh, can look at have you guys done any work on the sort of outreach that China is doing, sort of prestige building, not at national level, but at local level, kind of, uh, promoting friendship agreements with local global governments, twinning arrangements, all of that sort of stuff. I know myself, one of the county uh, councils in Ireland, Cork, they had um, made a friendship agreement with a province and I went to them and said, OK, here are some reports saying that there's forced labor in this province and are you you know are you happy to remain associated with that because by being associated with it you're giving somewhat of a shield to it because you're happy to lend your name to it and the response i got from them was that we are aware that there are differences in values between our two countries which uh if someone goes to you and says there's forced labor effectively slave labor in part and you say well there are differences in values it seems you may have somewhere of an upward climb to convince governments to get on board with this. Uh, yes, I, absolutely. There's, I think, as I said, like through the Belt and Road Initiative, I think it's one of the main main projects through which China is expanding its uh, not only its economy but also its its values, its repressive regime, its author authoritarianism uh, abroad to other countries. Um, and this is also like an opportunity also for the international community uh, to really be aware of that this is happening and that to not to not let China do this without repercussions like the European um, or like the international community uh, also has the opportunity to on its own to make sure that it promotes uh, human rights uh, democracy abroad um, because we've we've seen too much silence and too much inaction on behalf of the international community to to tackle China's uh, ex expanding authoritarianism. Even in Europe, uh, for instance, uh, China has uh, sold some of its very repressive surveillance technology to uh, to Serbia. Um, the the Serbian army had has had joint drills with with the Chinese army, um, and this is happening in the backyard of the European Union. Um, so I think, yeah, as you say, like. Awareness is a very first step, but it also needs to be uh, followed up with with specific action and yeah, also more awareness raising um, in other countries. And, I mean, from your position as as the EU policy coordinator, how has the response been uh, amongst European nations to your work? Is there a general willingness to work with you on this, or is there more of a concern that any sort of pushback on this will anger the Chinese and might have economic consequences as we're sort of seeing Australia take right now. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I mean, of course, the European Union is, is in itself a very complex 
complex uh, system in the sense that it is not only a, a single a single entity, but it is also made up of uh, various individual states. Um, but absolutely, the European Europe, European Union itself, but also the European member states, um, have showed willingness to listen to us. Like we we we're always like able to, to have our say, and we're we're able able to meet with with persons. Um, but from meeting with them, from being heard, to um, from there leading to 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 actual action to be taken, that that is a different step, as you say. Uh, many countries, uh, not only in Europe but but also outside of Europe, are are sometimes very reluctant to really uh, enact uh, like very concrete measures uh, because of China's economic power, which we cannot deny is is of course very important to it's also to Europe. Um, like the example again of the uh, EU-China investment agreement shows that for for the European Union, but also for its member states, um, economic considerations are, are are very highly thought of. Um, and in this case, like you could say, it trumps human rights, and it's it's yeah putting profit over over like yeah like actual human lives in in East Turkestan because um, as I said, like it's 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 time for action. Like it's like business as usual cannot continue and China is susceptible to also like economic pressure of course because it needs it needs its expert it needs the European market so if if Europe and European countries uh jointly uh take a stance and say uh we will not do business we will not assign any trade deals whatsoever with you unless you commit to to your you commit to respecting your human rights obligations, you actually do respect your human rights obligations, not only commit them, but actually respect them. Um, if you make a firm stance and like really make your your economic um, your economic trade relations with China conditional on China respecting its human rights uh, human rights obligations, that can make a real difference. But it's it's yeah, it's agreed. It's incredibly difficult to get all you you member states behind that, and also the European Union and such because of China's economic but also political power. I suppose, just to, to close with, on something like this, do you have any concern that as more attention is focused on this and international opposition to it grows, that rather than stop China, it will push China to accelerate the process somehow or to become more draconian um, rather than actually causing them to to stop the the current approach is that a concern at all or um i think there's a difference between uh like the more public attention it gets the more people speak out on it um yeah this could indeed be a concern from china as well in a sense that it might speed up the process um, and that is also why it is necessary now to take action like it, it, you cannot afford to wait any longer because what we've seen over the past year, like China implementing uh, a scheme to suppress Uyghur birth rates by sterilizing Uyghur women, it shows that China is not only is now not only it's not only um, like indoctrinating uh, Uyghurs by like changing their minds and like really eradicating their culture, but it's eradicating a, a people in itself. Um, so this indeed shows that China is is it doesn't stop with. Uh, forced labor or, or detention, like China is deliberately uh, eradicating uh, a people, um, and that yeah, that's why like voicing your concerns uh, like 
for instance, uh, if the international community voices concerns and bilateral talks with China, we've seen over the past few years that China, like they, they, they listen, like, but they don't do anything. They don't care about what they say. Like only real action will, will really be able to to make an put an end to this. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It, there is a concern that like China's policies are um, getting coming more and more concerning to us, um, and that's why we keep reiterating our calls that real and substantial action needs to be taken uh, really soon. Kun Stoop of the World Uyghur Congress, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Gary.